What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from the Herald, also the host of the Pats Interference Pod. You see him on NBC Sports Boston as well. It is Andrew Callahan. Callahan, what's going on, man? How are you? Good to be back. I feel like we took a break there over the summer. Like uh, we're coming back to school. You know, you see all your friends and folks that you don't <laughs> otherwise hang out with in June and July. So it's good to hang with you, man. Yeah, nice to see you. So I got to ask you, Callan, before we get into the specifics with this Patriots team, do you like this time of the year? Like, where does this rank for you in terms of Patriots coverage? I mean, I'm guessing during the season you get your routine and during games, like you're charting stuff, like I'm charting stuff during games too. But then it's like during this time, nobody is there, right? There's fans like at some of these things, but you guys are basically as beat reporters, you're basically telling everybody like what's going on at these training camp practices. Do you like this part of the job? I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of the year. Last season, it was the only good part of the year. <laughs> but the year before <laughs> that, you have Mac and Cam's competition in 2021. And it's just a matter of, you know, how much can I digest every single day? Then you digest it. How can I put this out into what's most important on a day like today, even when you have fans? Because, you know, you're, you're like you mentioned, the vehicle for everyone to understand what's going on. This isn't a game that everyone will dissect and post clips on Twitter and have opinions about and talk for a week on to the next game. Like this is, what are the things I noticed today? They're going to be storylines tomorrow. And how can I write those up? In addition to covering Mac or today was Malik Cunningham. Um, so yeah, favorite, uh, close to my favorite time of year. Yeah. 
And speaking of that, Malik Cunningham. So you tweeted out that he played quarterback at the start of team periods. You also tweeted that David Andrews said he took reps with Cunningham, meaning he being David Andrews. He briefly worked with the Patriots' best offensive players. So what's going on here, Callahan? We shouldn't be going nuts about this, right? Like, is this a big deal? Like, what was going on with Malik Cunningham? So Malik Cunningham took the first snap of team periods today in practice. Then Thunder rolled in the distance and Belichick rolled everyone in the stadium. We sat in our cars for 30 minutes until everything passed, clear skies. They come back and Malik Cunningham again is taking the first rep in team periods. Then he takes another one. And by my count, he took three. A couple people have him for five out of one that end up being, you know, 45 to 50 team snaps overall for quarterbacks. But the interesting part, of course, was that he was leading off those team periods, usually reserved for starters. He took a snap from David Andrews. He handed it off to Ramondre Stevenson. I'll let you fill in the rest. And I think it could have been one of two things. One of which is you just want to know what you have. And you're not going to dedicate a ton of resources to that because he's still technically the fourth string quarterback or receiver you're trying to develop. Um, But don't forget, Brock Purdy was Mr. Irrelevant last year. And so as an undrafted guy, Malik Cunningham, another three-year starter in college that everyone thought they had figured out, which basically went one pick later than Mr. Irrelevant. Mind you, also got the most guaranteed money of any undrafted rookie the Patriots have ever signed. So aside from, let's give him a little bit more based on Thursday night. The other thing I would keep in mind is the Patriots play Jalen Hurts week one. That's a big opener against the Eagles. There's a lot of mobile quarterbacks, not just mobile guys who can scramble, but guys involved in the QB run game. So maybe the best way to get you prepared for the Eagles is not to spend just that one week preparing, but a little bit here and there in every practice, fast kid who can run that kind of scheme and just do it at the beginning and then get into your Mac versus your one Zappy versus your twos, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. And look, maybe down the road, they decide also like, Hey, maybe Malik Cunningham is better than Bailey Zappy, right? Like as a backup down yeah. the road from now or something along those lines. So maybe that's part of it as well. But yeah, I think you're spot on with the Jalen Hurts thing. This is like the perfect guy to have as your scout team, Jalen Hurts. And like you said, they play him week one. So you may want to get ready for Jalen Hurts right now. So I think you're probably spot on on that. But it was just like on social media today, Callan. I'm like, whoa, people are going nuts about this Malik Cunningham situation. On a Sunday, nonetheless. Like, can we can we relax for one day? And I, I'm here for the Malik Cunningham. Like I said on TV on Friday, thank God for that kid. I think he would look great in red. Let's get him a jacket, put him in the hall, make it happen. Because otherwise, <laughs> we should have all burned or buried that game tape, especially offensively, because it was just one of the worst games, even by preseason standards, any of us had ever watched. That being said, he needed one drive to score their only touchdown, lead them in rushing, and give some sort of competency to that offensive line or the whole offense, which because of the offensive line was dragged down. So I'm excited. I'm pro Malik. I just don't want to use words like he saw extensive time at quarterback. Like, yeah, compared to what he was doing a week ago, which was zero. Anything is yeah. extended. All right, that's it. So baby steps. I think that's fine. But I'm, I'm very, very intrigued to see him not only this week in Green Bay during joint practices, but how much run he gets in the preseason game. Because the second and third games are going to tell us a lot more uh, than last Thursday night did. Okay, so you mentioned the preseason game. So you wrote after the Pats' first preseason game, quote, the Pats played offense in their preseason opener like they have all summer as they already know they can't trust their offensive line. Like it's a bug of their system, not a feature. I, I do like that too, a, a bug in the system. I like that. It's, it's, it's good writing there, Callahan. That's why you, that's why you got the gig, man. Stole that. Yeah, surely from someone at the ringer somewhere. Absolutely stolen. It just happened to fit there. Thank you. <laughs> I like it. And then, so, and by the way, and you then you said, and why wouldn't they feel this way? So 
and I get it, it's their second team guys out there on Thursday night, but you look at the tackle situation and tackle grades last season, I'm not saying pro football focus is the be-all end-all, but Trent Brown, 44th of 87 qualified tackles in terms of his pass block grade, McDermott was, four, or just in terms of grade, 44th of 87, McDermott was 49th, Riley Reef was 54th. So you also mentioned in the article that it's been bad in practice, the offensive line, and they went with the journeyman and Reef rather than going big game hunting after, say, like an Orlando Brown or a McGlinchey, somebody along those lines. And you mentioned they're still waiting on getting Trent Brown out there and Cole Strange back in team periods, which they have to gel together. This unit didn't gel at all last year. We hope the scheme would sort of help out and bring in a guy like Adrian Clement, not having Matt Patricia be the offensive line coach as well. But do you see this offensive line being a big problem for the team? If you were predicting now, like, are we going to be talking about this after you play the Eagles, which have one of the best defensive lines in the NFL week one? Is this going to be a topic of conversation, you think? Yes, it, it has been, in my opinion. Like, we were all going into the draft saying, okay, you need a corner, an offensive tackle. The rest of the roster is fine. Like, no major holes, but those are the yeah. two. They address corner immediately. Christian Gonzalez, come on down. Second round goes by. Third round goes by. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. No offensive tackles. Okay, they're starting right tackle today. City Sow is a career college guard in Eastern Michigan. But I don't know what you were doing in 2018 that you haven't done since. For him, it was playing right tackle. So he's dusted off the last three weeks of playing a new position after kicking inside. And that's because inside today was Riley Reed, who was someone that was projected, according to the athletic, to be their starting right tackle. One year, $5 million, pulled straight from the discount bin and the leftovers from the Bears and Bengals. Well, by the way, the last two seasons, said some of the worst offensive lines in the league. So it's not only the youth, the lack of starting talent. It's just a matter of you dealt with this last year. Like Connor McDermott was signed off the Jets practice spot in November. That guy was starting for most of training camp and practices. And then they threw him on the left side because they didn't have enough bodies. And of course, he just gets spun around, commits a false start, and allows run stuff all on the second drive. So it's a mess from a talent standpoint. The coaching will be better. I just think, Brian, if I gave you the keys to an offense, I say you're going to have enough of a receiver. It'll be okay at running back. Tight end's pretty good. One of them's like more of a receiver, but Mike Kosicki's a good guy. He'll get along with him. And quarterback, TBD. You get to design this thing, run with it, and go. Oh, by the way, the offensive line is kind of trash. This is the offense you would build, okay? It's RPOs. It's all quick game and tons and tons of screens. And that's what we saw, not only just Thursday night, but in training camp. So I think they're trying to get ahead of it because the concerns we have about the offensive line on the outside, dating back to the draft, I think are, are very real and on the inside, even if they're still in the process of figuring things out. Well, and you tweeted out and you wrote about it too, like 20, what was it, 25%? So nearly a quarter of Bailey Zappi's dropbacks in that game were screens. So, so clearly like Bill O'Brien, Bill O'Brien is protecting his quarterback, like in a preseason opener, ba Bailey Zappi, like you couldn't even, he had the really nice throw to Thornton. But other than that, you really couldn't like assess his performance because it was like he had no time to do anything in the pocket whatsoever. He got sacked on his second dropback. Okay. And then the rest of the night, more than half of his attempts went behind the line of scrimmage. So let's talk about the injuries though for a second, because that night, anyone listening to this who is an optimist about the offensive line, A, God bless it. B, you're right. They were missing all five starters, but no team in the NFL goes the whole season, let alone one with 17 games now. It doesn't have an offensive lineman get hurt, get benched, or otherwise not play. So the players you saw Thursday night who had a 38% pressure rate allowed, 32% metric man. I am coming. Can you tell I missed you, Brian? I have the staff <laughs> ready to go. 32% of their runs, their design handoffs, 
we're stuck. That's one third of the time. You're just in absolute deep shit. And so for them, like you're going to need those players. And I think Jake Andrews will come along. I think City Sal will come along. Antonio Mafi, who's been starting at guard, could come along as well. Just how far? Because Adrian Clem is under a lot of pressure now to turn those three rookie backups into a sixth or seventh offensive lineman you can count on in game day. Because the fourth and fifth guys, whether it's Riley Reef or even Cole Strange, who hasn't been practicing because he got hurt, um, are still question marks. Yeah, it's a great point. And we mentioned in the offseason, like, why not just go get an elite tackle and just be done with that for the next couple of years? They keep shifting these guys in and out. And Trent Brown, as you mentioned, making his way back. Who knows what he looks like? One year, he can look great. The next year, like last year, he had 13 penalties as well. Like, you just don't know what you're going to get with Trent Brown. You don't know what his motivation is going to be either. So there certainly could be issues there. And so I look at the run game, too, last season, and they were 22nd in rush success rate. They were 21st in rush EPA. They were 21st in rush DVOA. They were 25th, as you mentioned, stuff percentage the other night. They were 25th there. So Ramondre was at 3.81 yards after contact per attempt last year, the second highest rate in the league. It's good in one sense that it sort of shows you how special the player is, but it also shows you that you have issues with your offensive line. And we talked last year about the issues with the offensive line, as we're just doing now. But I felt like we talked about it more so with the passing game, right? Not really the running game, but these numbers tell you it was a real issue in the run game as well. How concerned are you about them running the football, even though you have an elite back? Like, is this a situation where you think that Ramondre is going to have to have another one of these special years to look like an elite back? Like last year, what he did... It sort of is underrated because of how difficult his job was actually. Like, his job was really difficult to do, and he was still successful. So, it was all him, the running game, starting in the middle of last year. Like, they, they sandwiched a game against the Colts with two against the Jets. Those three games, the defenses had the same game plan, which was just like, we're going to force one-on-ones for your offensive line, play zone coverage behind it, and you're not going to be able to do anything. And the fact that, as you mentioned, Stevenson was so good at creating yards after contact. By the way, there's a stat that tracks where you were first contacted as a running back on these handoffs. Stevenson was at the bottom of the league. Basically, how, how bad is your offensive line in creating room? That's, a, that's the essence of the job. Make room, let him run. And they couldn't do it, but he was still gaining those yards. And so that's a lesson I thought they would have learned from last season because Stevenson got so banged up. You needed him at the end of that Bengals game. He fumbles, fumbles away a potential win. He was in the middle of that debacle in Las Vegas. It was no accident or coincidence, in my opinion, that he had the workload of one and a half players and then made those mistakes down the stretch. So you would think, okay, let's get him another running back. Well, instead of addressing the offensive line, which we just covered, and they fixed the coaching to their credit, some of these problems have been solved. They go fishing yeah. in like the USFL, like bakes him. You know, like don't go to the bakery and get a real cake that might be like close to expired, but still good. And it's discounted. Hello, Ezekiel Elliott. Here's a guy who, who can't play in the NFL, as far as we know. Same with Pierre Strong, Kevin Harris, who just might be cut. So, they need another back. I've been advocating for Zeke for weeks. Good and blitz pickup, good and short yardage. Let him do the dirty work and give Ramondre a breather because the kid is special. But as it stands right now, they're going to run him into the ground again because that's the only option. Yeah, it's a great point in terms of the running back situation. And I'm with you. I want them to go get Zeke at this point, too, because clearly they don't have enough faith in those backup running backs that you mentioned or the second and third guy and even like the other night I know they weren't blocking well but I didn't see anything like special from those guys Kevin Harris had an opportunity to pick up a first down he couldn't do it I just I don't see and look maybe you see something differently there being there every day but I mean you're mentioning Zeke that seems like the perfect fit especially a guy that's I'm not he's not an older player but he's a guy that's had a ton of carries in the league and 
Bill, like one of his issues with Ramondre the rookie season was the pass protection thing. And you mentioned he's really good in pass protection. He's really good in short yardage. So this seems like the perfect thing. Do you think they're still in on Zeke? Because I saw Lombardi float out this theory that both Delvin Cook and Zeke know where they're going, but they wanted to wait like two weeks so they don't have to go to training camp. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but do you still think the Patriots are in on Zeke? Like they, They've been like all these guys have visited the Patriots, right? Delvin Cook. Um, who else did? Uh, There's another running back. Uh, Leonard Fournette. Like all these veteran running backs have visited the Patriots. Yeah. yeah. And Henderson. Yeah. So, and none of them have been landed. Do you still think they're in on Zeke? I think they're in on Zeke. The latest reporting I trust is from a good pal, Mike Giardi, who said it's about the money. Chocker with a player like that. But look, if you're Zeke or you're any running back who's being treated like you have been in the market recently, absolutely bide your time. Like, oh, I don't know if I'll come out tonight. Might be nine, could be 10. Might see it midnight. I don't know because I don't really <laughs> want to waste some tears for reps or runs on training camp. You know, let's get, instead of ready for going out, I just want to show up and be there at the bar or at week one or whatever's going on. So Zeke makes sense for all the reasons we just talked about. Fournette supposedly was out of shape for his workout, which again, this was different for Zeke. He came in and has a visit. Roll out the red carpet. Fournette, we're going to roll out some cones and 40 yards worth of turf and you need to sprint and it barely didn't go too well. So I don't think anything is really there with Cook. He would be the most expensive out of all of them. When you look at all the way the, the reporting has been hedged or qualified, might have interest in a potential visit, like two qualifiers or more, I'm out. I don't count that at all. And again, they're signing CJ Marable, who we all just learned A existed and played at Coastal Carolina last year. So that's that's where we're at with all of those guys. Yeah, not a great situation if Ramondre ever went. And that's another thing. It's like we know that, okay, even if Zeke isn't the same guy anymore, if Ramondre, knock on wood, got injured, well, at least you have a competent running back to back him up. And we know that this team is not going to be lighting you up from a pass game perspective. So you need a solid running back behind Ramondre because you're going to need to feature him if Ramondre happened to go down with something or he just missed a game or two. I mean, we've seen this throughout the NFL. So hopefully they can get something done with Zeke. You steal a line from someone really quickly on this position because running back is not that complicated either. Like that's why these yeah. guys wait to better. You know where to go and what to do. And guys like Zeke do that. Kevin Harris and Pierre Strong, we don't know if they know where to go and what to do. Pierre Strong also didn't <laughs> practice today. So like I don't have a ton of confidence in those guys. They were fourth and sixth round picks respectively. Kevin Harris let Pierre Strong and then he laid a dud in the preseason opener. So the offensive line stunk, but as far as they could control, it's not been great. As far as the Patriots could control, uh, Zeke Elliott still doesn't have a team. So I would I would make it happen first. Yeah, and I mean, he sat on the same side of the table with Mac. I mean, I think that indicates that Mac really likes him. I mean, that I don't know. I don't think I've ever done that, sat on the same side of the table. Just, that was the perfect encapsulation of the Patriots free agency pitch right now. Like, we heard this from Macro the first day of training camp, which is like, how do you pitch players to come to the Patriots? His answer was, A, players know they can come here and they can work. If you love ball and you love to work, like, okay, cool. You can sign up for 11-hour days in Foxborough, Massachusetts, not New York, not Miami. Like, okay, I get that. Or, his word, you've been, quote, institutionalized. And so that means players who have started here and then can't leave because either they're not let out of the building or, as he said, been institutionalized. And that picture of just Mac and Zeke sitting together at that table, which who knows how much that captured or didn't. Like, we can have some fun with this, and I'm about yeah. to. There could have been guys on the other side that weren't sitting at the time, right? Yeah, right. Like, they went to dinner in the seaport. That's generally a nice night for someone who's done that. But the way that they just stared dead ahead, sitting on the same side of the table, was like they had dated the same girl 
who was with him and then just left. And you don't want to talk to that guy who was sitting next to you and done the same thing, perhaps more recently with that woman who just got up and left. Like you wouldn't want to spend time with them. And that, that felt like it captured the whole, you know, vibe around the Patriots and their dalliances and free agency is it's awkward. It's straightforward. And some guys who come visit just don't want to be here. And that's when they leave and they don't have a contract. It's a great comp. I would have never thought of that comp, Cal. It's an outstanding comp. I really like that comp. So <laughs> it really was a bizarre picture. <laughs> Unbelievable. But so it's I wanted so to get weird. to it. It was weird. It, it was really weird. I wanted to get to your you had a column out the 28 thoughts on the Patriots. And by the way, I love this, man, because now you get Doug Kite aboard at the Herald. So you get to do more of these like I, they're not hot takes, but they're they're takes. Right. I mean, you get to be a little more takey in your in your work at the Herald now. Right. Am I correct on that? You're absolutely right. Uh, takey is his word. It's not wrong, um, but it uh, yeah, more more fun, more features, like longer things that have a little bit more style to them as opposed to straight news. I, like I'll say this, I'm incredibly lucky to have anyone work with me because it's a difficult beat to handle on your own. But especially someone like Doug Kide, who I kept comping to DeAndre Hopkins being on the market, but we actually signed him. Like that's how I feel when he came aboard the Herald. So anyone not following Doug, uh, please do. He's great. Yeah, I love Doug. He's an awesome guy. He's been on the pod a bunch of times. Glad that he's working with you. That's awesome stuff. So, all right. So one of your 28 thoughts was the Pats need Jack Jones. And your reasoning is spot on. And I'll let you get to that in a second. But if you look at last year, 17th in pro football focuses coverage grade, 10th in passer rating against at 63.1, 50% in terms of completion percentage against. That was tied for eighth. And because of the way it ended last season, right, the suspension, of course, and then obviously he had the gun charges in the offseason, it can kind of get lost in terms of what a good rookie season he actually had. And now if you have the combination of him and Christian Gonzalez, that would be tremendous for this team, having two legitimate corners, young corners to build with going forward. You have this whole legal situation sort of hanging over him right now, but it does feel like they're all in on Jack Jones, just based on the fact that he's getting the first team reps and he's with the team right now. Am I correct on that? Yeah, they're all in because they have to be. I mean, the starting point for that thought in the 28 that I had was run through your, you know, memory of how many mid round picks and the rookie season getting suspended in the off season, get arrested and then walk out of a practice the following summer in training camp and then get to come back like nothing happened because the following day, Friday, that was the Thursday when Jack Jones just left for 20 minutes and then came back on the sideline and chatted with like an executive and a couple of different teammates. The next Friday, he was a full participant in practice. He's a one-on-one as far as we're here. And it's because of the thing you just mentioned, him and Christian Gonzalez on paper is a good quarterback tandem. Him and Jonathan Jones is a good tandem, but we only have two of those three. Your next option outside is either five foot eight Marcus Jones or Amir Speed, who started for one year on defense in college between Georgia and Michigan State, and then Isaiah Bolden, who also started one year in college, but that was down at Jackson State. So for them, they don't have many options left, and because of that strong rookie performance, they'll sit and stand through all of the Jack Jones nonsense, which had a difficult upbringing. You, you know, I think try to have as much empathy and understanding as you can, but when it comes to the numbers, 10 counts that he's facing for five felony gun charges. He's 25 years old. This is your second year in the league. You'd figure by now that the Patriots are run out of rope and they keep handing it to him, though this is going to be a big week because he's due back in court on Friday for a probable cause hearing. Yeah, and we'll know a lot more after Friday whether or not uh, the likelihood, really, of him playing week one, depend- sort of depending on what happens here, right? I mean, 
I wonder like what the Patriots are thinking right now, man, because if he can't play, it's it's a really big hole that they have to fill. And you're waiting until see what happens from a legal situation, which is unfortunate. That that was weird, too. The the day that he got like kicked out of practice. How bizarre was that? Was it was it weird? I'd never seen it before. And you couldn't even say, hey, Jack Jones got kicked out of practice. We've seen that. Like Coach Jesters says something. Last year, Kendrick Warren fights against the Panthers when they have joint practices. He walks away, never comes back. You know what that looks like. You've seen it before. That's what it was. This was a play near the sideline, breaks up the pass for Kendrick Warren, gets up frustrated, speaks through this position coach briefly. Then Jabril Peppers has his arm around him. He keeps walking away from the field, a couple words with another teammate, and then just keeps walking down the steps. They're like, what? Like, there was no skirmish. There was no yelling. There was no anything. He was just, quote, ultra competitive, according to Jalen Mills, who talked to him when he came in return. But it was the most bizarre thing. And they keep making excuses for this guy because they need him. And the other thing is, we haven't seen Jonathan Jones for over a week now. So we talk about, oh, two of the three. If Jack Jones this week just got suspended, or the NFL said, we're putting you on the commissioner's exempt list, indefinitely just gone, TBD, you are then down to Christian Gonzalez. And I don't know what Jonathan Jones' status is for week one. But he could also get hurt, like we've seen corners, and we talked about with offensive linemen. It's not a guarantee with any of these guys, so they're trying to have Jack Jones as long as they can. Man, this guy, he's legitimately out of his mind. This is unbelievable. I mean, not only has he got this legal stuff going on, he's got issues in practice, too. I mean, it's unreal. You're going back to last year, we mentioned the re- the rehab stuff where he's showing up late or whatever it was rehabbing his knee. It just it seems like... Hopefully he can play because if he can't play, they're in real trouble when it comes to that. But man, this guy is going to be a headache for however long he's with the team. We've already seen it. He hasn't even been with the organization for two full seasons yet. One season and he already has all this drama. So you also mentioned Demario Pop Douglas. You pointed out in your 28 thoughts that he's established himself as a number four guy. And I was looking into some of his college stuff and I know it's not the SEC or the NFL, 6.4 6.4 yak per reception. You know, I love that, Callahan. That's a really high number. And the Patriots guys last season, Bourne was at 4.1 after the great season in 2021. Aguilar, 4.7. Jacoby, next to nothing, 3.6. Thornton, 3.0. Parker, 3.4. Now, you do bring Juju in as well, who's at 5.8. That was seventh among receivers, so you like that. But you can use certainly guys that can make plays after the catch, especially if what we're talking about earlier is going to be the case where they're having trouble protecting the quarterback. It would certainly be nice if you can have guys sort of make plays for you. But Douglas, I mean, he's in the 97th percentile on the broad jump, 89th percentile in vert, super athlete. He's in the one percentile in height, which I just find funny when you go on mock draftables and you see the one percent, he's 97th in broad, one percent in height. Obviously, he's like, what, five, seven. But obviously, you've been impressed with him during training camp. A lot of people in terms of the coaching staff clearly have been impressed with him during training camp. So you see him having a, what type of role do you see him having? He's on the team. Like that, that part's done. I mean, he played two offensive snaps in the preseason opener at a time when all, virtually all the other rookies, including Christian Gonzalez, by the way, he can't like played 10 times that, if not more. So this is a guy who has been something rare for rookies. And that's very steady. Every single day in practice, three to four catches. For the most part, those have been from Bailey Zappi or Trace McSorley. Uh, a couple more, though, including two today for Mac Jones. And so even players like Juju, who have had maybe six to seven catches over the last four practices, have droughts. It just happens. It hasn't, though, with Demario Douglas, who, like I said, is, is probably your wide receiver four right now, could probably ascend to number three because someone who's been steady in the wrong way has been Kendrick Bourne with ones and zeros in terms of total catches and team drills. Not, not, not everything, not the whole stats. He had a great offseason, is actually faster, stronger, and quicker this year. But 
Douglas gets more separation. He's been more consistent. And so that's a guy who could start in the slot maybe by the end of September if he keeps up with this. But we like print the jerseys, hang, hang him in the pro shop. He's, <laughs> he's on the team. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, unfortunately, you mentioned Kendrick Bourne there, where it's like, I'm, 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 I'm going to die on the island, man. The Kendrick Bourne's legit. I think I'm going to die on that island the way that it's trending right now. It's great to see that Demario Douglas has taken this step and could be a real contributor. I mean, the Patriots, I mean, they have a nice record of finding guys late in the draft. Maybe not so much with the high draft picks in terms of receivers, which brings me to Tyquan Thornton, because... Nice catch in the preseason game. That was awesome to see. And you'd like to be able to weaponize that speed, 4-2-8-40, which is, we all know, the fastest for a receiver two years ago at the Combine. But is it kind of feeling like he's getting lost in the shuffle here? Like this is going to be a second season where we don't see a big contribution from him? Yeah, I think so. Like, I, I just, I think I'm lower on consensus than Tyquan Thornton. I have always have. Like, you get that bump for being a second-round pick. You get the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the Patriots saw something. Oh, they supposedly let the Steelers to get, get him. By the way, the Steelers, of course, take the actually productive receiver deserving of the hype. George Pickens a pick oh, later. Oh, did you did you see that catch, Callahan? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. I, and we, It's a great point. We knew it, like, right when they drafted him. I'm like, wait, this team drafts all the best receivers. And you took – and this guy went right after him. It's like, this is a lock. George Pickens is going to be an absolute stud, and it looks like it's going that way. People have said this, and I completely co-signed. Whomever is making those picks or making those scattering reports on receivers in Pittsburgh, they need to fly in, kidnap him, bring him to Foxborough, and put him in a windowless room until the day after the draft next year. Just make it happen because it's been too long. This is It's been ridiculous. Anyway, Thornton gets that bump as a rookie, has another catch in a preseason opener like he did last year. He was in the end zone. He scored a touchdown against the Giants. Everyone's all excited, breaks his collarbone a week later. You don't see him. To me, the story is he had more snaps than Kendrick Bourne did last year and more opportunity. Might have started week one had he not been injured and yet did much less of that than Kendrick Bourne did in a mess of a year. So now there's supposed year two leap. Like it was a nice catch again in the preseason opener. I don't believe any more from him because his skills are stretching the field and being six foot two. And we haven't seen him use those or get open with those skills yet because of other holes in this game, a lack of strength, separation in his stem, and sometimes at the top of his routes. So I'm still waiting. I think the Patriots are very happy to have tomorrow Douglas, but his numbers, Douglas, are what a second-round pick should be doing in year two. What Tyquan Thornton's doing is what a six-round rookie should look like in training camp. <laughs> Unreal. Well, hey, at least he, we can just pretend that Douglas is the second-round pick. <laughs> and and uh, excuse me, Tyquan Thornton was the late-round pick. We'll just pretend that for the sake of Belichick. All right, so you wrote that the Pats pass rush might be their best in 15 to 20 years. And I got to tell you, and I know it's preseason. I know we got to coach all this. I was going nuts watching Keon White the other night. And I was doing it on the pod. Like, I was fired up after that game. And by the way, it looks like he's in his mid-30s. Like, he looks a lot older than an NFL rookie. Massive dude. And we also know, like, getting to this defensive line, this defensive pass rush, I should say, Uche's breakout season, top 10 win rate last year. Jude on another great season. And Barmore is sort of the forgotten piece here, right? He battled the injury last season. But he did show promise as a rookie. I mean, his 75.5 pass rush grade via PFF, that was 11th among defensive linemen. Maybe this could be his breakout season, Callan. But I think it's a good point. I mean, this could be one of the best. And last year, I mean, they relied on the defensive line more than the secondary. I think we could see this be one of the better units in the NFL in terms of the pass rush. The numbers would tell you last year they were close to that. So, I mean, this group is, I mean, is it the best unit on the team? I think so. And you mentioned last year, you know, they're an 8-9 team. They're trailing in a lot of those games. 
So you're not facing as many passing situations, right? Where Josh Uche can play. Like for all the production he had, 12 and a half sacks, he's still yet to play more than 34% of their snaps in any single season, I think at least. At least no higher than 40 for sure. So you take a guy like Uche, you mentioned Barmore, Keon White, who I had Ted Johnson on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, just outright admits, huge, masculine, strong, still in playing shape, Ted Johnson, that he was <laughs> upset. Keon White outbenched him at the combine. He got to 30 reps. Ted got to 29 and a half. <laughs> and so that's a guy going, I'm a dude. No, no, no. That's a dude. Throw him in there. Judon's still very much in his prime. People forget about Dietrich Twice, who also set a new personal best with sacks. Did that by like Halloween and then had a billion pressures. So you're five or six deep. It keeps everyone fresh. And I think this year, because your offense is more competent, you'll get more passing situations where you can just roll those guys out as opposed to worrying about run defense and early downs where Josh Uche is not going to play. So better season from the young guys, the vets stay at least in their prime and then throw in a rookie who just, I don't like people forget too about Cam White, forget that he's 290 pounds, good in space, hunting quarterbacks left and right, just powers through anyone he wants. He's only been playing defensive line for three or four years. So like, let's just see what this kid looks like in November when he celebrates that anniversary after transferring to Georgia tech and changing positions. Like, Oh, I know what to do now. Like he's, he is a certified beast well who was it that said something i forget who it was said when what were you expecting when you drafted him and somebody's like pain was yeah, that <laughs> so doug oh i shout out early you're having the pot all the time uh texted with someone uh close to the team or in the team and said oh, yeah. what, what were you thinking and keon white was someone he considered in the first round when they traded back to 17 he was still available and i will tell you talking with daniel jeremiah at nfl network asked him every single year Hey, what, what prospects look like Patriots to you? Keanu White was the first out of his mouth. And now we can all see why. Yeah, he, he's the kid is an absolute beast. I, I really look forward to watching him play this year. Yeah, you're right. It was Doug that tweeted that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And when they drafted him, like the video showing him like getting drafted, you're like, okay, this is a Patriot. <laughs> like, he looked yeah, like I this. Love, like What he got knocked for in the scouting process was he wasn't as affable during his answers. You know, very business-like, straightforward, gruff. Hmm. Who does that sound like that we know <laughs> maybe in the coaching ranks? Like, could not have been more tailor-made to be a Patriot. And I think they were very lucky. I mean, we'll see. You know, like, I talk about, let's pump the brakes on Lee Cunningham after one game. Can't wait did a lot. He did a lot, right? He was still playing the Houston Texans football club that could be, uh, you know, another team bound for a top-five pick, even though they own it, to another bottom-five team um, in the Cardinals. But uh, I'm excited. Like, he, he just – he has traits – where the margin for error for him when he shoots the wrong gap or overruns a play will allow him to get back into that play because of how fast and explosive and strong he is. So when he's doing the right things, those are the plays you go as someone on the other sideline. You just, you can't do anything about it. And that's, that's where he's getting closer to. Yeah. Cannot wait. Cannot wait to see him play. And it is probably Bill was looking at it. Like after the interviews, everyone's knocking him for it. He's like, okay, I got him one on the big board. Will Anderson. No, no, no. I get this guy. Number, number one on my big board. I'm putting him up there after these interviews. Bill, Bill's like one, the only guy that came out of the interviews. He's like, I'm actually more impressed with him now. <laughs> after well, he was him. watching Keon white tape in the draft room when they give this look and they post on Patriots.com and someone had clipped and zoomed in and it was a North Carolina home game as they're you know, preparing to take Christian Gonzalez and Bill's still looking through film. And everyone's like, Josh Downs, Josh Downs, Josh Downs. It's going to be a receiver. They need one. They'll take him in the second round. Lo and behold, that clip was of Georgia Tech at UNC. And it was Keon White at 290 pounds mm. covering a wheel route all the way up the sideline from his alignment as a defensive end. So not hanging out as an outside linebacker, 
kicked a little further inside, five, maybe seven technique, and then running 30 yards downfield, had it blanketed from a wheel. Like that's the special kind of athlete. Forget the football player, but now we look like, we know what that looks like, um, that he is and had Belichick excited even on night one draft. Freak show. Hey, what have you seen from Barmore? Has he has he had a good training camp or? He's been solid. Um, you know, again, it's difficult to tell. We've only had five padded practices. I don't mean to right. edge on that. But I think like that's a dude, the the underlying numbers and signs indicated as a rookie. Okay, there's something here. You know, the pressures, it's not the sacks, the quarterback hits. Um, year two gets hurt. But once he got healthy against Miami and then Buffalo in those last two games, those same numbers cropped up again. So he's a guy that I think you saw a lot of the 2020 draft picks had their development slowed because of COVID, you know, no training camp or minimal right. training, camp, no preseason, no mini camp, no OTAs. Josh Uche comes along. Kyle Duggar does last year in year three. Barmore, I think is going to be the same deal, not because of COVID, but just because of that injury that he had last year. And so I, I, I haven't seen anything yet, but he shows out against the Packers offensive line certain reps this week, which I'll be in Green Bay for those practices. I'll, I'll be back on pumping his tires just like he's Cam. Nice. Love it. Yeah, that'll be fun, too, going to Green Bay. That'll be a lot of fun. Have you been there before? Have you been to Lambeau? So I was at Lambeau last year. You're also the first person to say that out loud to me because I speak with uh, Trenny Kuznerk uh, <laughs> from NBC Sports Boston, Wisconsin native, and then uh, talking with Greg Bedard, who lived out there and covered the team for a while. And, like, neither of them were that excited to stay out there. But I love yeah. Lambeau. Like, if someone Yeah, is- that's, what I, that's what I mean. I've never been there. So I'm like, that, yeah. that must be interesting to see that stadium. It's more of the surrounding town. And as someone who came up covering college football, I lived in State College, Pennsylvania for a couple of years, covered Penn State from afar a year or two before that. Green Bay is the closest you get to a true college town in the devotion, the way the whole economy, the whole neighborhood is just built around a giant stadium and Sundays, or of course, college case, Saturdays. That's awesome to me. So I love that energy, that atmosphere, and everyone's all about ball. So it's, uh, it's a good time. All right, so I got to ask you about Marty Mapu because everyone's falling in love with this guy. You wrote most overrated camp storyline, Marte Mapu. Okay, now I was not the biggest fan of the pick at the time. I thought like the safety group is really deep. I remember like Bill like really liked this guy, and Daniel Jeremiah really liked him out of Sacramento State. Like, and we know Bill loves these guys that can play multiple positions: the safety, the linebacker hybrid. But the hype is getting out of control. You're saying, huh? It's not out of control. Of course, he just shoved this up my you know what, today with two pass breakups and team drills the day that that article came out. <laughs> he looked great. Broke one up for Hunter Henry. Matt Sokol just had no chance, absolutely blanketed in the red zone. To me, the thing is, where's the room for Marte Mapu? Like, this is a very clever right. defense. This is a defense Bill Belichick looked at last year and said, we're bringing everybody back. And the only guy who didn't come back was the one who retired from Devin McCourty. So the safeties in particular, he's behind uh, Kyle Duggar. Adrian Phillips, Drew Bill Peppers, who in that same article I think is on the verge of a, a late breakout here, and Jalen Mills, who had an interception in the preseason game. At linebacker, Juwan Bentley's not going anywhere. And then it's Jelani Tobai, who they like to have as the second linebacker in base. And you might go, okay, it's whatever. He's Jelani Tobai. Like, he's just a solid C, C+. Plus. Sure, but he can play on the edge. And that allows him some flexibility formationally to play out of different looks, whereas Marte Mapu is only a light off-ball linebacker. So his only role to me is going to be in sub packages, third down, if they trust him in that instance. Okay, you can go roll out there. It's going to be a passing situation. Cover the tight ends, like I just mentioned, or a running back or blitz. So that's that's my thing, is I don't know where he fits on the table at Thanksgiving where someone wants to come in with jello and you're like, well, we have all the normal ingredients. We did the same <laughs> thing we did last year. Like, we'll just have to wait until a later course. We're going to have to wait till third down, and then we'll dive in. Because right now, there's just no room on the table. 
Yeah, it just seemed like a pick that really didn't make sense for what this team needed at that particular point in the draft, the third round pick. So, but hey, I, I, the Jabril Peppers note is an interesting one. I I saw that in your column as well. So we'll see. I mean, look, the guy's always been a freak of an athlete. I mean, there was a reason this guy was like in the Heisman Trophy situation when he was at Michigan. So I'm excited to see him too, because I thought he had some moments last year and we know the dude can hit. Like he absolutely thumps guys. I, I heard McCourty the other day, talking about it on the Pats broadcast where they brought them in for a couple of, you know, here and there throughout the game, they brought them in with Zoe uh, Zo and Bob Soshi, and they were, like, comparing, like, who hits harder, Duggar or Jabril Peppers. And McCourty was saying, like, maybe Duggar more consistently, but Peppers, like, basically thumps harder than he does. Like, he's a big-time hitter. Jabril Peppers is someone that during the regular season, whenever I'm in the locker room and guys are filtering in and out and Porter standing around not talking to anyone, because that's mostly what we do in the locker room with the Patriots. Um, I don't care if I set PRs on squat, bench press, shoulder press, pick anything. I see him walk by and feel so crappy about whatever I've done that morning at the gym because he is incredibly rocked up and he knows how, you know, talk about, again, where to be and what to do. Like, he's learning now more in the system year two, not to mention coming off an ACL tear last year, finally found himself in December and January. That stretch of games that he played in the force with which he played, where he's harnessing all those physical talents we just talked about is what gives me real hope. He's also played free safety, which is the issue now with McCourty gone, that they're looking for players to cycle through. Kyle yeah. Duggar, maybe Adrian Phillips has done it. Peppers has done it. He has the 4-4 speed. It's just a matter of this guy who can get a little over-aggressive, rein him in a little bit. They're doing that. And if you trust PFF, he had the second highest overall grade of his career last year. New defense, wow. new teammates coming off an ACL tear. That's why I'm so high on this guy. In addition to the fact he's always around the ball with the first team defense and he's not running with the twos or hasn't as far as I see. In addition to the fact that you point out he is built like a mannequin that you'd see at your like local Dick Sporting Goods. So he just like completely rocked up. <laughs> he's, he's the, you know, I, I don't want to talk about too much about his physique, but like you stretch the bounds of this in Madden for 2K. You know, you just get to screw around like 99 muscular, you know, 99 all of this. Like that's him. But that that's what made him a high school legend in New Jersey, five-star prospect, uh, recruit coming out of high school, going to Michigan, playing you know, special teams, defense, a little bit on offense. He's not that same dynamic player I guess from a movement standpoint but for what the Patriots want box safeties dudes who can hit and cover like that's that's him all right Callan let me get you out on a couple of fun ones here so here's my first one more likely in the 2025 NFL season Josh McDaniels is still a head coach or Bill O'Brien is a head coach uh I'm gonna say Bill O'Brien and I I had a lot of faith in the folks that went out to Las Vegas last year 6-11 is pretty rough uh but I just I, I was put best in a power rankings. I want to say it was Eric Eager used to be a PFF. You know, contenders could be contenders hanging around like bottom feeders. The last tier was vibes, and it was the Raiders by themselves. And I think that's the best way to put it. Just not portend well when your when your team is riding on vibes coming off a six and eleven season. But that's it's a weird situation. I think Bill O'Brien's going to do good work this year. He could be as gone as uh, as soon as February, June, or January. Yeah. Why didn't they draft a quarterback? Did they just like not like the guys available at seven? I mean, maybe maybe this is the long game. They're just going to tank it up and get either Caleb Williams or Luke May next year. Like maybe that's the play. Uh, I think he'll make it till next year. McDaniels will. But you you lose a locker room fast the way that they benched their starting quarterback last year for the last couple of games. Just said, Derek Carr, take a hike. Go wherever you want. Just not here. 
And then if you do that again to get another quarterback, like anyone standing up for him in that locker room and Devontae Adams needs to be waffling now. It's like, why, why am I here? It's December and January and we're punting on the season. I, I could do that anywhere. What well, I don't want to be here. Anymore. So I, we'll see. Um, they're not afraid to make big swings, speaking of Devontae Adams. So maybe they could have gone up to two and just didn't have a deal. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that Devontae Adams situation play itself out because when you're at that stage of your career, you want to be competing. You went there to play with Derek Carr, part of the reason, right? And now Derek Carr's not there anymore either. Although I know they're friends and all that. It's a weird thing to want to go play with Derek Carr of all quarterbacks. But all right, so last one for you. Who wins the division if it's not the Bills? It's a good question. I mean, most folks would say Miami, and it's the same old hedge of, oh, it all depends on Tua's health. Okay, great. What else can you tell me? Like, I, people in Miami who have my job are not paid to tell you, well, it depends on the quarterback, and if he's healthy, huh? Like, it's, it's, it don't sound like that, for the record, that was off by me. But Maybe some of them do. Yeah, maybe they do. I, I just can't say the Jets, though. Like, you realize the last time the Jets beat the Patriots, Obama was in office? Holy shit. No, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> how, how can you do that team? You know, and there's something to be said that, you know, it gets overrated, you know, your history and how that plays into your next game. Like none of those goes from 15, 16, 17, 18, blah, 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 are, are still there with them. It's Aaron Rodgers show. I also just see a downside with them. That's not quite Russell Wilson last year in Denver, but maybe a step up from that, given their Ooh. shaky offensive line. And yeah. Guy Rodgers, who's, Underrated story. Their line sucks. Let's say Moody. Uh, now their defense is stacked. They're great in all the right places. I don't trust solid just yet. So this is a roundabout way of me not crossing off the dolphins and the jets, but just exploring why I'm hesitant. Cause I'm not going to pick the Patriots. Um, but if you want to take a flyer, I don't know what the odds are at FanDuel go nuts. I'm going to, I'm just going to say the dolphins. Cause I, I just think their ceiling is higher than anyone in the division. Uh, but their floor might be second lowest too. So, yeah, here we go. Dolphins. And bringing in Vic Fangio, I thought that was a huge move, right? Like we talk about O'Brien here in Miami. They were talking about Fangio in the same way because after Flores left, like they're running that defensive scheme that was just ended up being a mess for them. I will say this, though, about the Jet, like the Sala thing. I think that's a phenomenal point. I could not have been less impressed with the coach during hard knocks. Like he's just a freaking cheerleader. <laughs> like that, it, it was a, what a throw, what a throw, like the whole game. Oh, and then there's like, I think he was talking about Garrett Wilson. He's like, he's so good. He's so good. It's like, dude, like you got to chill a little bit, man. Like this is, this is kind of like overboard. And then I thought just uh, hard knocks, uh, just to go on a slight tangent, I thought it was terrible. Like the Rogers stuff. Okay. was interesting for a second, but then it just turned into, oh, Rogers is so good. And then they bring Schreiber because Rogers calls him the voice of God. They bring him to the practice and like, OK, that was cool for a second. But he ended up being in the episode for like the final like 15 minutes. It's just I, I had high expectations because it's the Jets. But th look, I think what they'll probably do now is like they'll dig into Hackett. Uh, Hackett was the offensive coordinator when I was at Syracuse. Like he is an interesting guy and he's like really fiery and even like the Sean Payton thing. They didn't dig into that enough. They just showed Rogers like response to Peter Schrager when Schrager was interviewing him. Like they didn't even like Rogers didn't even like they should have talked. Now he did do the psycho thing. I guess that was one funny part where they're playing that game where they're throwing the balls like at the barrel or whatever. <laughs> and he said, uh, Sean Payton, but I don't know. I usually like I'll watch hard knocks no matter who it is just because it's hard knocks. But I, I thought it was a pretty underwhelming episode. Like we have Antonio Brown freezing his feet. Like, 
We like we have hard knock. We have Rex Ryan with snacks. Like we have good episodes of Hard Knocks. A to like this is just I didn't do much for me. So I have a confession. I have not watched Hard Knocks faithfully in maybe ten years. Like oh, wow. the year after Rex Ryan in the Jets, or the year after that, because I think that was around the start, or at least maybe people were more aware. Where um, in a different space. Like the one thing that always used to give me confidence, I could be an NBA head coach, was listening to them talking timeouts during TNT. Grab rebounds. <laughs> we got to go faster. Don't turn the ball over. Hey, thanks, professional basketball coach. I had never heard that before. But then you learn that the league has to approve anything that's put in the broadcast. So naturally, it's going to be super sanitized, basically. Right. Yeah. So the content from Hard Knocks goes through the team. It goes through the league. It's the same a lot of these documentaries that folks are doing. You know, hats off to the last dance. You finally got Michael Jordan to sit down and all this unreleased footage. It was great. But that precedent that's been set, however far back you want to go, really limits, you know, the truth that you got out. Like, it's, those documentaries aren't documentaries. They're exercises in truth management, which is like, as a journalist, I'm just not here for. So when it's truth management about the Jets, okay, we're not going to just look at the records and the playoff drought. The Aaron Rodgers press conference is on his own. I have enough truth myself. Like, I don't need to go for your version or fun of it. But it's really funny that, Robert Sala is not impressing you because I don't think uh, for my conversations with people in Patriots organization, he impresses them all that much either. So um, I'll leave it at that. But, uh, and it's, it's not personal to him. It's not like he's a bad yeah. guy. You know, his mantra early on of all gas, no breaks. You go back and watch their first two games, particularly the second one in 2021. Patriots won 54 to 13. Screens, delayed action, just trap after trap after trap that they laid on that film because the Jets were going all gas, no breaks. And the Patriots were like, sure, we'll let you come in and throw it right behind you. And they did that. And it was missed tackles everywhere. So um, anyway, it might be a difference of philosophy. The Jets go 13-4. Good job, but I'm taking an under on them. And uh, you know what? They deserve to be in the vibes tier. All right? It's Vegas and the Jets, and we'll leave it, we'll leave it there. <laughs> and the D coordinator. That guy's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Albrecht. Yeah, yeah. yeah do your that guy is an idiot. He's saying, like, and this isn't me being a Patriot homer, but do your job. Like, he's like, like he doesn't like the saying. He's like, fuck that. And he comes up with his own thing. I'm like, yeah, man, that's been proven to be an unreliable thing. Do your job. Like, it's, that, that, it's never seemed to work. I mean, there's not like six Super Bowl trophies or anything based on. That slogan, he th- like it's one of these guys that he sh- thinks he's smarter than everybody else. You know what I mean? Like he wants to come yeah, up do with something. Do it, but harder. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, do your job, but harder. Let's see that on a T-shirt or a slogan or a wall. Like, what are you talking about? Like, when, if you do the job right, the job's done. You move on to the next one. Like, yeah, it's a boring slogan. It doesn't say anything, but like for them in New England, it works. It captures, you know, everything you need. Like, effort's a part of that. Give a hundred percent effort. Here's a technique. Follow these fundamentals. There's your assignment. Go. Yeah, you no, took a. You took a good slogan and added a word to it. Congratulations, man. You're an innovator. All right. That is Andrew Callahan from The Herald, also the host of the Pats Interference Pod. You see him on NBC Sports Boston. Callahan, thank you so much for the time, man. And hey, man, enjoy the rest of training camp. I know you said it's one of your favorite parts of the season, dwindling down, because then you're going to have to cover real games, man. Well, it's okay, because I'm going to be able to take my sorrows uh, to Green Bay, where I, I hear Wisconsin might be the drunkest state in the union. I might partake, might not. And then go down to Nashville, <laughs> where they're at least the drunkest mile stretch on Broadway in the union. So uh, excited for those trips, all the content coming back. And it's just good to see you, man. Like I said, I've got schools back in session. We have a couple classes, maybe once a week or a couple weeks here. It's uh, good to be back with you. 
You too, Callahan. Awesome stuff, man. Football season is about to kick off, and FanDuel is giving you the chance to win all season long. Because right now, when you bet on a Super Bowl winner, you can get bonus bets every time they win in the regular season. Just pick any team to win the Super Bowl, and you'll get bonus bets after every victory. You can use your bonus bets on spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and start earning bonus bets with America's number one sportsbook. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. Must be 21 plus and present in selected states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max bonus $50 unless specified otherwise. Restrictions apply. See terms at Sportsbook.FanDuel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Andrew Callahan. Love talking Pats with Callahan, man. It's crazy. We are getting closer to the season. Cannot wait. Patriots season is almost here, baby. Let's go. Let's go. But I will say this. The Red Sox, pretty good weekend for them. Now, Saturday was not great, but they do take two of three from the Tigers after taking two of three from the Royals. And it's something you needed to do after what transpired against Toronto last weekend, where you came into the week five games back at Toronto. You're now three games back at Toronto as they lost a couple over the past week. And you're a game and a half back of Seattle, who's in front of you for that final wild card spot as well. But you still have Toronto in distance. Now, the Red Sox schedule is going to get a lot more difficult after this national series. You're talking about a couple against the Astros. Mookie Betts is coming to town with his Dodgers, and you do have the Yankees in the mix who suck. But the point being, you have a huge stretch coming up. We have two series against Houston and one against the Dodgers. So you needed to take four out of six, and you look at this national series, ideally, you got to sweep that. Now, you at least got to take two of three. Like, you can't have an A's situation where they lose a series to the Oakland A's like we saw. But the point being is Josiah Gray is going to go in the opener, but it's not a good national team. Obviously, they can't hit. Their pitching is not great. Like you have a real, or I should say their offense is actually not as bad as their pitching, but their pitching has been atrocious this season. So you have to go in there and sweep that nationals team. Bottom line, that's what you would like to do. But I do want to get to some things from this series because I thought there was some interesting development. The first thing, my first takeaway is how about... <laughs> What Cora did to Erod. They lit him up for 10 hits. Alex Cora just puts all righties in the lineup. Really, it was unbelievable because you give Rafi the day off against the lefty Erod. And Rafi, by the way, good hitter no matter who's on the mound. But Erod is really good against left-handed hitters. He's opponents hitting just 148 against him. So you give Rafi, this is a really smart move by Cora, give Rafi the day off on Sunday. Then he gets Monday as well. So he gets two days off here. So the lineup is a ref Snyder, Turner, Story. So three unbelievable hitters against left-handed pitching to start this. I mean, Story for the past, since he came over or prior to coming over, he's one of the best hitters against left-handed pitching in all of baseball. I'll get to that in a second here. But ref Snyder is tremendous, right? He leads Major League Baseball in on-base percentage against left-handed hitters. And then the only lefty you have in there are the two lefties you have on there. Of course, one of them is Casas, who's one of the best hitters in the sport right now. And Yoshida, who has a 367 on base percentage against lefties, better than righties. So those are the two guys, the two lefties you have in the lineup. And you have three hits for Story off Erod. He had another hit, too. More on Story in a second here. Two hits on Saturday for Story, by the way. And one on Friday after he started 0 of 8. So his timing is back. And so you look at this team. They just absolutely tee off on Erod. <laughs> Duvall hits a home run. And Turner hits a home run. And this is what you want, right? I mean, the Red Sox, now that they're getting guys back healthy, like the Trevor Stories of the world, 
and the fact that Duvall's been back for a while now, you can mix and match your lineups where Verdugo's not in the lineup because there's a lefty. You can give Rafi the day off because you feel really good about, about the right-handed hitters you have going up against a lefty, and the Red Sox are right. And I wouldn't be surprised if they actually had something on Erod as well because remember Erod, this is a guy that notoriously tip pitches when he's a member of the Red Sox. It happened all the time. So I'm sure the Red Sox picked up on something. But I do need to get to story because now, since he came back from the injury, it is 12 batted balls. So that's not a high number, right? Like he's only been back for a couple of games now. But here's the interesting part of it. Nine of his batted balls, that's balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour, have been hard hit. So 9 out of 12 hard hit. That is 75% of his batted balls have been hard hit. So I thought personally it would take a little time, get in a rhythm, because remember, here's the interesting thing. Trevor's story was basically had like a couple of weeks, two weeks or so, rehabbing. And remember, when he's rehabbing, he's going up against all minor league pitchers, right? So even if you look at spring training, these guys are getting like a month or so, and they're going up against major league pitchers. Story didn't get major league pitching, and he had a shorter time to get ready, right? And so you start to think about that. It's really impressive. And he already has three barrels out of those 12 batted balls. That's 25%. So a quarter of his batted balls have been barreled up. If you look at it in terms of Major League Baseball, the leader, Otani leads MLB at 19.6 in terms of the barrel percentage. Now, I'm not saying the story is going to continue on this trajectory. It's just, it's really good to see that right away he's making loud contact and he's making a ton of good contact and it's great to see too because this is story's a launch angle guy if you look at it from 17 to 20 21 before coming over he was 36th in launch angle 17.7 degrees that's a high number so a lot of times what you see with these launch angle guys it may take a little bit longer for them to get their timing because you have that uppercut swing and if you don't have your timing, it can look really bad. That's why you see high strikeout numbers with a guy like Trevor Story. Because if you don't have the timing, it's going to look bad. There's going to be a lot of swings and misses. And he already has his timing back, which is awfully impressive to see. And if you look at it, I just think we get so caught up in what happened last year with Story. And of course, because of the injury, it was a major factor for this team. But this is one of the better players in Major League Baseball from 17 to 2021. 169 barrels, that was 26. 131 home runs, that was tied for 18th. 159 doubles, that was ninth. 378 RBIs, 19th. Slugging percentage was 516, 25th. His isolated power was 30th at 244. So he has been an elite slugger and an elite run producer. And if you just look at lefties, like you had Erod on the mound, that stretch from 17 to 2021, 20, 47 home runs, the fourth most. 58 doubles, that was second. 625 slug, third. 1006 OPS, third. A 313 isolated power, which is fourth. So <laughs> you look at those numbers against lefties. This guy is top five in basically every statistical category. He's an elite hitter against left-handed pitching. He's a really, really good player. And we just, we haven't really been introduced to that version of Trevor's story, except in a really small dose last season. And then you look at the fact that from 17 to 21, now that he's back at shortstop, 55 defensive run save, fourth. This guy is an elite level player, and we're starting to get to see this opportunity over the past couple of days here, just how impactful he can be. I mean, the play, or I should say getting, stealing second and then stealing third. I mean, this is remarkable stuff that Trevor Story is doing. And then you look at the contract, right? $22.5 million next year. So, and then $22.5 the year after that. So if you look at that number, that $22.5 next season, he's going to be the eighth highest paid shortstop. You're looking at Seager, Lindor, Correa. Turner, who's not having a good year, Swanson, 
Bogarts and Javi Baez makes more money than him. So if you look at the numbers, right, three shortstops this year are north of 800 in terms of their OPS. Bichette, and Arcia is in there as well. Then you have six shortstops north of 450 in terms of the slugging percentage. You look at Story's numbers, 512 slug career, 847 OPS. So he's going to provide you elite level defense, and he's probably going to be in the top four or five in terms of his position at OPS and slugging percentage. Odds of him not getting there, I would be surprised if he's not, right? So I'm thinking they're going to look at an elite player next year, just getting him back to normal, right? I mean, last season he had a slow start because he had the birth of his child during spring training, and then he started to develop all these injuries. Now it's like next year is going to be a comfortable season where he gets the entire offseason to get ready, and you're going to get elite defense and 25-plus home runs. Every year that he's had 500 plate appearances, he has 24 or more home runs. Two years that he's had over 600 plate appearances, 37 bombs and 35 bombs. So this is going to be a really good player for the Red Sox over the next. And I thought maybe this year you don't get it from the plate, but it looks like we're going to get that. And if you look at it, I know a lot of people say, oh, well, Colorado, everybody can hit in Colorado. Well, Nolan Arenado left Colorado. 88 home runs since going to St. Louis, 13th most in Major League Baseball. Numbers are down a little bit, but he's slugging north of 500 and his OPS is around 850 since leaving. DJ LeMahieu has a higher OPS and a higher on base percentage with the Yankees than he did with the Rockies. If you're a good player, you're going to hit anywhere, right? Like, I understand this whole thing about Colorado, but if you're a good hitter like DJ LeMahieu, like Nolan Arenado, and like Trevor Story, your numbers are going to be really good. So that was the big development over the weekend is Trevor Story looks great. I mean, he looks phenomenal. Okay, Bayo, not great. So in that game Saturday, the one game you lose in the series... 47 swings, just 10 whiffs. That's a 21.3% whiff rate. So that's a really low number. It would rank 76 of 92 pitchers that have faced at least 400 batters this season. And Bayo isn't a high whiff rate guy, 24.9%, which is 51st. But he has to be able to get swings and misses occasionally. And you go back to that game on Saturday, six of the 10 whiffs are on his changeup. So of those other 34 pitches, just four whiffs, right? So that's 11.8%. So really right now, the changeup is the pitch he's getting whiffs on, which you would expect. That's his best pitch. But only having four whiffs on your other pitches, that's just not good enough, right? And even if he's not a high strikeout guy, you have to get some swings and misses, especially when you have traffic on the bases, right? Occasionally, you need that punch out. So part of the issue Saturday was command. And the Carpenter home run, that's a slider middle-middle. By the way, that guy had an outstanding weekend. And this continues to be a problem against lefties, right? The only pitch that has been effective for Bayo against lefties is the changeup. Against the slider, where I just mentioned he couldn't command it against Carpenter, lefties are hitting 350 and they're slugging 550. Think about that. 350 against this guy's slider. So it's not an effective pitch against lefties. And the big thing for him long term, if you look at it, lefties on the season against Bayo, 291, <laughs> elite number for a hitter. 340 on base, 502 slug, 842 OPS. That's an all-star level player. A left-handed hitter against Brian Bayo is hitting like an all-star this season. And you look at some of Bayo, the stuff during the game, he really just needs to find a reliable pitch against left-handed hitters. The changeup's great, but he needs something else to work. If you look at these numbers, like in terms of the numbers I just laid out, that opponent's batting average is 79th um, of 89 qualified starters in terms of against lefties, the 291. The on-base percentage, that 340 I laid out, that's 66th of those 89. And the 502 slug is 73rd. So this is 
the guy that has been the most reliable for this Red Sox staff, but he really needs to figure something out when it comes to that because this is the thing that's preventing him from being a bona fide ace. He already is a top three guy in your rotation, and he's going to be that for the foreseeable future. But if he wants to get to another level, he has got to figure out another pitch against left-handed hitters because this continues to be a trend. And getting back to not being able to put guys away, you go back to the Haas home run. He got ahead of Haas 1-2. After that, misses with a four-seamer for a ball. But then Haas falls off three pitches, a changeup and two two two-seamers. And then he throws him a cutter, which... That ends up being a home run, and you start to think about that. That's a right-handed hitter, right? So I, I don't even understand why he's throwing a cutter to a righty to begin with. Like, that should be a slider. <laughs> the slider has more movement on it. Why are you throwing him a cutter there? But it's just the fact that against Haas, and this is a right-handed hitter, going back to what I was talking about, he can't get the swings and misses sometimes when he needs them. And look, I, I'm not trying to—this is not supposed to be me being down on Bale. I love Bale. I'm just saying I'm pointing out things that if he wants to be a legitimate bona fide ace, which I think we all believe he can do, there are certain things that he needs to get better at. And one of them is you got to put Haas away when you're up 1-2 in the count. Like, you have got to put that guy away, and you need to be able to get him to miss. Like, he can't be following off three of your pitches. And that's just a bad decision, by the way, to go with the cutter. But so, look, part of this—and look, it could just be—I say that he went to the cutter there. It could be that— it didn't move enough that it was actually a slider and it got labeled by Savant as a cutter. But the bottom line is the pitch has got to be better. So look, part of this also could be fatigue with Bale. He's been the only consistent part of this Red Sox rotation. Paxton started hurt. Sale, of course, just came back. More on him in a second. Kluber sucked and was hurt. Crawford was a starter then to the bullpen, right? And now Whitlock is just back in a bullpen role and Houck is making his way back, right? So he's the only guy that's been consistent. And if you look at the beginning of the season... Through the end of June, 13 starts, 308 ERA, 15th of 84 starters with a minimum of 70 innings. So really good, right? But then you look at the start of July through today, and this is prior to today's start, of course, because those numbers aren't finalized, but a 513 ERA in those seven starts prior to today from the start of July, 62nd in Major League Baseball among starters. So he just really has not been the same pitcher that we saw for the majority of the season. Now, teams have seen him more, and they've scouted him more, so that may, may be part of it, too, where teams are just—and we saw this earlier in the season, too. They're stacking up lefties. But he could be worn down. That's certainly part of the equation, right? It certainly could be the case. But also, with lefties, as we mentioned, this is something that he needs to develop. I mean, you look at it in terms of the changeup is nasty. It's a sick pitch. But lefties are hitting 324 against the four-seamer, 321 against the two-seamer. We mentioned 350 against the slider. And the cutter, he just started throwing that. He barely throws it. But you would think the two-seamer would be more effective sort of going away from lefties, right? But it hasn't been that great. And that's the other thing. It's like, okay, so if it is the two-seamer, then all your pitches against left-handed hitters are going to be going away. So that's why he's trying to develop this cutter because you need something where you can pitch in the inside portion of the plate. So he's got to figure this out in short order here if he wants to become an elite pitcher. And I love Bale. Like I said, I'm not trying to take shots at Brian Bale. I love him. I'm just pointing out the reality of what he needs to do to take the next level, to take the next step. Okay. We need to get to sale Friday night. Electric. I mean, the guy was absolutely unbelievable. It was awesome. Okay. 58 pitches, seven strikes up, strikeouts. He did give up the bomb to Carpenter, but he was flat out dominant. 16 batters face. He struck out seven of them. 43.8% strikeout rate. And if you look at it on the season, and I know this is one game, but Spencer Strider has the highest strikeout rate at 38.7%. Sale was at 43.8% the other day. 
Nine batted balls, two were hard hit, 22.2% hard hit rate. Corbin Burns leads qualified starters at 31.9%. <laughs> so he was better than the best strikeout guy and better than the best guy preventing loud contact. It's just stupid how good he was. 29 swings, 12 whiffs, which is 41.4% in terms of the whiff rate. Strider leads pitchers that have faced at least 400 batters at 40.1%. <laughs> so he's unbelievable. So he picked up right where he left off. Remember, prior to the injury... Five starts leading up to that before the game he was injured in. 223 ERA, which was 12th of 81 qualified starters during that stretch. The 074 whip was second. The 172 opponent's batting average was sixth. The strikeout to walk ratio was 25.2%, which was seventh. The barrel percentage was 3.7, which was third. And during that stretch, the slider was filthy. Guys were 4 of 34, 118 opponents batting average, and a 48.6% strikeout rate in at-bats that ended against the slider. So nearly 50% of the at-bats that ended against his slider during that five-game stretch, guys are striking out. I mean, just ridiculous numbers. So that was an ace. We saw an ace on Friday night. We saw an ace before he went down with the injury after the tough start to the season, right? He was not good in April, but basically... For a month after that, he was the best pitcher on your team. He's one of the best pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. So Friday night and Saturday morning, I'm fired up after watching that. And he had the shirt on after the game, which was hilarious. It was like, eat, sleep, Chipotle, repeat, which I thought, I don't even get the, why is there eat in there? Eat, sleep, Chipotle, repeat. It's like, isn't the Chipotle and eat kind of repetitive? But nonetheless, it's a fun t-shirt. I did like it. But if you look at it, with sale out from June 2nd to August 10th, Sox starters, 266 innings. That was just 28th in baseball. And look, to their credit, they had a 396 ERA. That was seven, so that's a good number. But imagine what those numbers would have been if you had this version of sale. And it's a trickle-down effect because of these bullpen games, right? Remember, Pavetta wasn't the bulk guy right away. He was a traditional bullpen guy until eventually they said, let's do this bulk thing. But, and now back in the rotation. But let's say when they discover Pavetta in the bulk role, right? Just for this hypothetical. And you had Sale. Well, then you really don't have any of those bullpen games because Pavetta is eating up these innings. So during Sale's absence, the team went 31 and 28, which is pretty good. But with Sale for that stretch, right, out that long, are you three games better than you are right now? And are you tied with the Blue Jays right now? Are you four games better than you are right now? Because what we saw, we had an elite level pitcher that we were watching for basically that entire month and change. And you were missing that. So it just, it brings you back to sort of the aggravation with Sale, right? Because he's so nasty. You love him. You love everything he says. Like the quote that he had after the game on Friday, anytime I ever step on the mound and stare down that barrel and have competition, a batter facing me, I don't care if I'm in the complex league. I don't care if I'm in Worcester. I said it to Trevor after my first Worcester start. There's nothing like that feeling. Like you love everything the guy says, but then there's these injuries. They aren't his fault. I'm not blaming Chris Sale for getting injured. Like, you can tell that he wants to be out there. Like, the other day, man, he just gets out there and he competes. It's just his body has betrayed him in the past. But I just look at it and I say, well, I love this guy, but the Sox have to sign, going into next offseason, a legit front-end rotation guy, okay? Because if you look at this team, the offense is loaded, the lineup is great, you really feel good about where your bullpen's at, especially the high-leverage guys. But no more another year of, hey, is Whitlock a start? And I'll get to him in a second here relying on sales health. You can't do that to yourself anymore as an organization. And you have the money. I saw Milliken tweet out a video of Yamamoto's curveball 
the guy from Japan, and my buddy Lou Merloni tweeted, this is the big fish that the Red Sox need to flex and go get him, to paraphrase what Lou was saying in the tweet. So that would be great. The guy's stuff is filthy. I mean, you can go see him on social media. But the guy that I'm looking at, and you have other guys available, Julio Urias, like a bunch of free agents, the guy that I would be going after from the Red Sox is Blake Snell. So you look at Snell, there should be familiarity there with High and Bloom, of course, because of their time in Tampa. So Snell this season has a 263 ERA, first among starters, 31.3% strikeout rate, fourth among starters, 194 opponents batting average, second, 32.1% hard hit rate, second. So we're basically talking about the best pitcher in Major League Baseball this season. And ton of strikeouts, not much hard contact like we were alluding to at Sale. Best curveball in the sport, 57.7% whiff rate, first with curveballs. The 0.86 expected batting average, 86 batting average, first. And the heater is 95 plus, and the slider is nasty too, 54% whiff rate on that, third. So you have a curveball for righties, you have the slider for lefties. This is the guy the Red Sox should be getting this offseason, okay? Because you look like 2024, this team is going to be a legit wagon. Like, this team is loaded, okay? The lineup is going to be really good. Cost is coming in to year two. Healthy Trevor Story with everything else you get going on, right? So this is where you have to be the Red Sox. Like, this is where Bloom has to do that thing where it's like, okay, we're the Boston Red Sox. We have more money than most other teams in the sport. We are outbidding everybody to get Blake Snow. That's the guy they need to get. Okay. Let me get to Whitlock here because he pitched on Sunday afternoon, two innings, three strikeouts, 11 called strikes plus whiffs. So that's a 45.8% called strike plus whiff rate, which is an indicator of how nasty your stuff is because that metric, to get back to the metric band here, basically just measures the amount of called strikes and the amount of whiffs you get, right, to determine how nasty your stuff is. So if you look at qualified relievers this year, Robert Stevenson is number one at 38.7%. Whitlock was at 45.8% in this game Sunday. Only four guys are north of 35% of the season in terms of bullpen guys. And the reason I did bullpen is he came out of the bullpen today. Now, here's the big thing. He sat at 96. He was at 93.6 prior to the injury in terms of the average. So he's up 2.4 miles per hour there. Change was at 83.9%. So you have that outstanding gap in terms of it's basically 12 miles per hour softer than the heater. That's an issue he added points this season as well. The velocity on the slider was up from 79.2 up to 82.3. So that's what, a 3.1 mile per hour jump. And that's huge because it's been being labeled as a sweeper this season. And he says that he's not throwing a sweeper. So I think the reason they label it that way is because it's too slow to be considered a slider at that, that, because everything now is like, people call everything a sweeper now, but the slider, 82, that's a slider. That's not a sweeper. So, and you're looking at, nine inches of horizontal break, which isn't a ton of movement for that pitch. It's actually 4.2 inches below average. So the fact you need that to be at 82, if it's not going to be one of these big, like the Chris Sale slider or the Tanner Houck slider, it needs to be faster. So the fact that it's at 82, that's a really good number. So you want to see that continue to happen. And look, this is a two inning performance. I'm not going nuts over this. You want to see him do it again because he's been up and down this season. He's had trouble with his velocity at times, but very small sample size, just two of the batted, but I will say this, two batted balls on the ground, which is good. That's a 50% ground ball rate. And this, for some reason, has been dropping. Like last year, his ground ball rate was at 40.8%. This season, 44.4%, which isn't a bad number. But part of what made him elite in 2021 out of the bullpen was he was a ground ball machine, 49.7%. So almost half of his batted balls were on the ground. That ranked 39th of 144 qualified relievers. So nice to see 
more stuff on the ground. This is what made Garrett Whitlock a great pitcher. It's not just the fact that he has a really good changeup. It's the fact that he works the bottom of the strike zone and gets a lot of ground balls. And it should be like ground ball should be a high number with his stuff because his fastball is a two-seamer and he's throwing a changeup a lot, right? So that's something we should see going forward. And this was a sign to me like that looked like 2021 Whitlock today. And you look at Whitlock's rookie season. 95.8 with the two-seamer. He was at 96 today. 83.1 with the change, as we told you. 83.9 today. 83.7 with the slider. 82.3 today. So that's what you need. Like, those are the same numbers in terms of the velocity that he was at when he was an elite relief pitcher. So we look at his career, and I get it. It's only 90 and two-thirds innings as a starter. But a 282 average compared to 215 as a reliever. So horrendous to elite. The ERA, 224 as a reliever compared to 476 as a starter. So the difference is 252. That's more than double, right? So I, and the other thing is all these injuries happen as a starter. Going back to the TJ with the Yankees starter this year, the elbow issue starter, the hip situation last year starter. I just feel like I don't want to play this game anymore. You have an elite relief pitcher in Garrett Whitlock. Okay. He's due to make $3.25 million next season in terms of you already got a good contract. It's something Bloom did a really nice job of. You already have him signed out through the arbitration years. Okay. And next season, that 3.25, that'll rank 46 among relievers, okay? The 46 highest paid reliever in the sport. So yes, great if he was a starter, but you have a great relief pitcher. Just stick him in the bullpen. Like he can't stay healthy as a starter, hasn't been effective as a starter. Just keep him in the bullpen. There's worse things than having like your new version of Andrew Miller. Okay, let's get to Justin Turner because I got to give this guy some credit. This is remarkable what he's doing. He's playing through a heel issue that usually takes four to six weeks. And he's out there and he had another home run on Sunday. After hitting one on Saturday in the loss, he's now up to 19 home runs on the season. And look, JD's having a great season, but last year he only hit 16 home runs. And I know that this year he has 25, but it wasn't going to work here. He's now reunited with his old hitting coach. It just wasn't working at this point with JD. And with Turner, he's Turner is a more consistent guy than JD. Like JD has more power, but if you look at Turner... 354 on base percentage compared to JD at 312. The Sox needed an elite bat to ball guy, right? They had too many strikeout guys last year. The 16% strikeout rate is 28th out of 140 qualified hitters. JD's at 30.9%, which is 135th of those 140. So it's just a better fit, and JD's a great fit for Los Angeles. It's just, it, it was a better, both teams benefited from moving on from their DHs, if you will. And he's really been outstanding since the start of July. Entering play Sunday, these are Turner's numbers. 330 average, 11th of baseball, 583 slug, 13th, 960 OPS, 19th, 30 RBIs tied for 11th. And remember, he missed some time with the heel situation. And you look at the situational stuff this season, 59 RBIs with runners in scoring position, that's 7th. 355 average, 7th. 408 on base, 14th. 598 slug, 9th. And a 1006 OPS, 9th. 38 hits tied for six. So this is just, these are really, really good numbers from Justin Turner. And I just love the fact that you're getting this level of production from him. He's been downright outstanding for this team. All right, so I do want to get to the Hoag situation. So he's going to get one more rehab start. And then he's returning as a starter, Alex Cora said, before the game on Saturday. So last rehab outing, three scoreless innings, just one hit, no walks, which is a big thing because sometimes Hoag can struggle with command. So I would ordinarily be against this, where putting him in the rotation. I don't think Tanner Houck is a long-term starter. I've said that multiple occasions. You know this. But he is a bullpen weapon. But right now, if you look at where the Red Sox bullpen currently stands, Martin, I know he had the hiccup on, on Sunday, but he's been great. 
141 ERA prior to this one. Winkowski's at 286. Jansen's your closer. He's been great. Murphy as your long guy, 294 ERA. And Winkowski can give you multiple innings. And Whitlock's now back in the bullpen, right? So you have the lefties with like Murphy and Bernardino who has a sub three ERA. So it's not like you could look at Tanner Houck's stuff and say, hey, he's got good numbers against lefties. So maybe we could use him when we don't have another lefty. But 813 opponents OPS against lefties, that's not good, obviously. So now with Whitlock in the bullpen with Winkowski and these guys and Whitlock, those are better multiple inning guys out of the bullpen, right? And you have Schreiber as well, who has four straight scoreless appearances. Not that he's a multi-inning guy. Oh, he can be, but, and he struck out the side on Saturday. But you have your high leverage guys. You have your better right-handed options. And you have your middle inning guys, right? And you have your high leverage guys. So really, there's not really, if you look at the value for Tanner Houck with this team, there's not much value putting him in the bullpen, right? You have better options there. So I think what you're just trying to do is have him be a multi-inning starter, right? Not a traditional starter. So you would expect that he goes through the order maybe twice, right? Like this is where you think, okay, let's steal some innings because we don't want him to pitch in the sixth or the seventh inning because we have better options right now, right? So I would be a little bit concerned about him going through the order the second time through. If you look at his numbers, 314 opponents batting average, which is 133rd of the 137 starters that have faced at least 100 batters the second time through. So awful, and a 357 opponents on base percentage the second time through, that's 124th of 137. So legit, one of the worst guys in the sport the second time through the order. The order, rather. Lefties are slugging 500 against them. That's 74th of 93 starters that have faced 140 lefties. So the lefties in the second time through, like these are two things that Tanner Houck has to figure out, right? And I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with Tanner long-term, right? This seems like his last best chance to prove he's a member of this rotation. And especially if they decide, like I advocated for earlier, that Whitlock be a bullpen guy going forward, no more fucking around and putting him in the rotation. Then you're looking at multi-inning guys going into next year too with Winkowski and Whitlock. So what is the value that Tanner Houck provides for the organization? Because you have high leverage guys. He's without question, like he's a super talented guy and he's flashed, but you have to start showing more consistency if you're Houck. And look, give him credit making it back from that injury, which is obviously horrible. But he's, this year, he's in his 27-year-old season. He's not really a young guy anymore. It's time for him to start proving that he belongs with this organization long-term. Because you go into next year, and 2024 is sort of the target for the Red Sox to compete. This is when you need to start winning ballgames. And this is when you need to start competing for divisions and competing for World Series again. I just don't know what Tanner Houck's role is long-term in this organization. All right, coming up next, we'll get to a couple of your calls, and we'll get to an email as well. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, 
tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. All right, we get time for some calls and an email. So the phone number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian. Eric from Portland, Oregon. Um, here's my question. Uh, so the Celtics, obviously, they put a big stake in the ground this offseason. They made a huge move. The Marcus for KP trade, obviously a big deal. I, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this whole they can't just run this back idea. This is the thing we always hear when a team is successful and they do well and they make the playoffs and they make a run and then something happens and they come up short. And all we hear is, well, they can't just run this back. They got to do something. And I don't, I don't know what that's based on. Like there is an alternate universe in which the Celtics run this back. They keep Marcus. Maybe they make some moves around the edges. Who knows? But you know, they, they could have taken this team and been really good next season and maybe won the title. Like, they went to the finals two years ago. They got to game seven of the conference finals last year. Maybe would have gotten further if their best player hadn't rolled his ankle on the first possession of the game. Like, did they really have to not run it back? I mean, how do we know? Like, I get the whole, like, look, you got to do something. You got to make a change. You got to make a big splash. You got to be bold. I get all of that. And, and, and to be clear, I am really excited about this upcoming season. I'm really excited to see what this team does. I think there is a universe in which this team with Porzingis is just a juggernaut. I think that is absolutely in play. I also think it was in play that this mostly sane team next season could have also been really successful. And, you know, as fans and observers, we kind of feel like, you know, well, there's this bias towards, well, you have to make a change. You have to do something else. You, you, you got to ship this guy out. You got to bring this guy in. You got to make a change. You can't just run it back. And obviously we'll never know, but um, I don't know. I just, uh, there's a part of me that feels like if they win a title next season, as excited as we'll all be, there'll be a part of us that will feel like, ah, kind of would have been cool if Marcus was here for this. Um, anyway, that's all. Love the pod. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so to the last thing that you said, for me personally, there's going to be no part of me that if the Celtics win a championship, then I'm going to say, I wish Marcus was here. And I love Marcus as a player. But why would I say that? I'd be like, oh, poor Zingas, that was a genius move. The Celtics won a championship. The last thing on my mind is going to be, Oh, man, it would have been so much better if Marcus was here. Are you kidding me? I mean, so that's the first part. But I do understand your original point about, yeah, you could have run it back and try to win with this team, to your point. I mean, they were two wins away from a championship a couple of years ago. There's certainly some truth to that. But I think, and Bill's brought this up on his pod multiple times, I think where I agree with Bill that the Celtics were so frustrated with some of these flameouts from an offensive perspective in the playoffs. And they looked at it as if, oh, okay. We can't continue to, for that to happen. And Porzingis is a massive upgrade over Smart from an offensive perspective. So that, to me, is why you make a decision like that. So for my, like, you could say that, like, you didn't have to run it back. That's certainly true. I prefer the route they've gone, where they try to get better from an offensive perspective. All right, who's up next? 
Mr. Brian Barrett, things are uh, looking up here at uh, Red Sox Nation. This is Joe out of West Virginia. The Bo Sox just took three out of four from Kansas City and now two out of three from Detroit. They've won both those series. They've got 44 games left to get involved, to get into the playoffs, just to get invited to the dance. Just get an invite and then see what happens. You've got to keep doing this the rest of the way in terms of whatever series you can win. Now it's on to the Nationals capital for a three-game set, and, and you've got you to gotta take that. I know they're not playing teams that are, are going anywhere towards the playoff race, so it's going to turn into nails the rest of the way. But, you know, you got, there's a team you'd have to beat anyway once you get to the playoffs. So try and see if you can do it in the regular season. Hein Bloom, Chief of Baseball Operations for the Boston Red Sox, and the Boston Red Sox President, Sam Kennedy, took the stance that we're going to stay with these guys that we have right now. They were about two or three out at the All-Star break. Let's, let's ride them the rest of the way and see what they can do. I know it may not have been a popular thing, but it was kind of a bold stroke, and actually I like it. Because you got foundation pieces moving forward, so let's get let's get them, you know, into the heat of a pennant race, and that's where they are right now. So we'll see what happens. Take care, Brian. Hope all is well with you. We'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. Great stuff as always, Joe, and appreciate the kind words. And it's a good point too. I, I actually, by accident earlier, said the Sox took two or three from the Royals. They took three or four, and they of course took two or three from the Tigers. So that's. My mistake earlier saying two of three. They took they won both these series. That was big. And look, to your point about High and Bloom, this is the team you have, and now you're getting these reinforcements back. This is when you gotta start to make your run here. It's difficult because you have two teams you gotta get in front of when you're talking about the Mariners and when you're talking about the Blue Jays and you just so happen to play those teams, you're on this bad stretch. But look, from my perspective, when I thought this was sort of a bridge year, they're in a position to try to get a playoff spot. They're in that position. Like they have a real opportunity here to get into the postseason, and we're going to see how they match up against these elite teams, the Astros, the Dodgers of the world after this national series. But the Red Sox have an opportunity. And this year, or last year at this time, we weren't watching interesting baseball. And like from a Red Sox perspective, ordinarily, we're talking about trying to win World Series. But I'm happy we're going to have relevant baseball down the stretch. We didn't have it last year. I'm fired up for that. All right, let's bring in our producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan, as we get to our offthepike at gmail.com email bag. Jamie, what's up, man? I'm good, Brian. How you doing? I'm good too, man. I like that you get the Super Bowl champion shirt on. I'm ready. Training camp here, baby. No doubt. Um, this is kind of feeding off of our, our call about this Red Sox tear we got recently. This is from Cody. Cody writes, at risk of sounding like old man yelling at cloud, I have to say that I'm completely over the Yellow City Connect uniforms, which the Red Sox apparently have decided to wear on regular days now. Like everyone else, I appreciate what the uniform presents. Well, if the Red Sox want to wear these one or two games in a marathon weekend, so be it. But what they're doing now is just overkill. I enjoyed watching this team all season, despite the extreme roller coaster we've been on. But the blatant overuse of the yellow jersey is making me lose interest in the season faster than if they were a tanking team. Seems extreme. Mostly because, I don't feel, <laughs> mostly because I don't feel like I'm watching the Red Sox. Uh, I'm sure you guys will tell me it doesn't matter what jersey they wear. And I'm sure you'll point out that the team does nothing but win in the yellow jerseys. But screw it. I want to watch the Red Sox and not the Yellow Sox. What do you think, Bri? Okay, so he does He does point out that the record is tremendous with the yellow uniforms. Um, I can't imagine that being the case for any sports team. Like, I fucking hate the Patriots uniforms. The Patriots <laughs> uniforms are shit. They used to have awesome uniforms. Like, the Pat the Patriot, they're bringing that back this mm-hmm. year. The red ones, love those. Always loved when Brady wore those, right? And then... 
I actually, random take, I like the Drew Bloodsill ones. Like the oh, Elvis, like the Royal Blue. You have one of those jerseys, Jamie. Yeah. I like those uniforms. I hate the ones they have now, the Navy ones. But I'm not going to be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not watching this game because of the uniforms. <laughs> I hate the uniforms, okay? And I actually like the City Connect ones. I kind of like them. I, I, I think they're, you look across the sport like the other, there's a lot of bad City Edition ones. I like them. I like the yellow. I mean, my own thing is I wish it was... The blue was the main color and the yellow was the mm. secondary, but I like the yellow ones. My my favorite Red Sox uniforms or my favorite Red Sox uniform is the um the navy. That's my favorite. Friday night? That Yeah, they wear that sometimes. That's my favorite. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they let the pitcher decide. But if I was ranking them, I used to like the in terms of Remember they had like the navy one year for the gray, like instead of the red? on the jersey where it says Boston, it was Navy instead the of the gray with the Navy letters. Yeah, I like that better than the red. I, I'm down with the red. I think, you know, not what? just me, though. But uh, yeah, in terms of like uniforms affecting me watching the team play, I think I'm kind of with Cody in the sense that I don't like these uniforms, but I looked it up. They're 25 and six with them. So it's gotten to the point where they must actually feel good wearing these uniforms. So whatever. So be it. I'll, I'll live with it. Yeah. If they keep winning. But I, I kind of get his point is they look ridiculous sometimes. But the one that I want to see them bring back was they used to wear it just in spring training. They were the green kind of St. Patrick's Day ones. They would just wear them literally on St. Patrick's Day in spring training. But it's like I almost feel like that Kelly green is like their unofficial oh, yeah. color. It's like the monster, you know, I think they should create something with that. You get a green with some red Red Sox lettering. Boom. Who, who's complaining about that? What do you think? Yeah, I like I, I like the green one. I wouldn't mind bringing that back for a game. So yeah, I'm with that. I, I mean, I actually like I don't dislike really any of the any of the Red Sox uniforms. I pretty much like them all. So I, I don't have a problem if they if the they feel like they play better in the yellow. Screw it, man. Yeah. You're in a race to try to get a wild card spot. Might as well, and the players like them. So if the players like them, yeah, you might as well wear them if the players like them. So I, I'm on I'm on board with the yellow city connect. And <laughs> I can't believe you you this. He's almost like banning the Red Sox because of the uniforms. Like that would be like the last time you'd want to ban the Red Sox because they actually play their best when they're in those uniforms. He's a man of conviction, which I respect. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. Talk later. All right, remember, if you want to get an email in, that email address is offthepike at gmail.com. The phone number is 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 
eight hope and or text hope. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.